This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. An incident on Friday has got Hamilton police uh, warning against people impersonating police. What exactly happened and what should we keep an eye out for? Uh, joining us right now is Constable Steve Welton, the Hamilton Police Service. I thought you were, uh, I, I thought, are you going to introduce your cohort here? Why doesn't he want to speak? You well, guys were hilarious off air. Like, we should just continue this. Well, you know. It could be like Adam 12 reco- recreated right here on radio. <laughs> Scott, you always make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> no, you got that look in your eye, like, knock it off. <laughs> no, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. So, uh, so introduce your partner. Yeah, here. I've got uh, Asif Kokar here with me today, where he's uh, just uh, coming in to listen into the conversation. Obviously, an important one here today. And uh, Asif's been uh, helping us out in media for uh, almost, I think, since February there, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, plays a key critical role in what we do. Uh, as you know, with information today, there's a lot of it, and. Uh, being able to share information accurately and uh, put things together. Asif has uh, been a key role in helping me uh, be available for more uh, engagement with the community, more engagement with the media. So uh, certainly always enjoy having him here with me and appreciate his work, as uh, we all do at the Hamilton Police. As I was saying to Asif, that it's amazing how many dimensions there are to the police service. And I mean, I thought it was just you doing this. So there's obviously several people doing it. This position, you move in and out of it, do you not, over time? Yes. Uh, we also have mentor uh, mentorship oppor- uh, mentorship opportunities where people get a chance to to come in and see the role and what they do and uh, provide uh, backup uh, opportunities. Perhaps if I'm off on vacation or perhaps on a boat somewhere one day, then we have other members that are trained to uh, provide the same skill sets. And you have been on a boat recently. Tell us about that really quickly. What, what You well, were off on a little uh, sabbatical, sort of Just speak. Just got back from some uh, some military training with the Canadian Forces, with the Royal Canadian Navy. It was a great time. And What's uh, that experience like? Well, it's uh, that's one of those top secret things. I guess you're going to have to sign up again there. No, it was it was yeah, great. like I'm going to make it. No, it was great. You probably could. I think you could. No, it was uh, it was a great experience. Uh, definitely a challenge. I mean, uh, I'm not the uh, youngest one of the group, so uh, then I might make it. You you could. You definitely could. But uh, yeah, no, it was a great time. Good for Glad you. To be back. How does that? help or aid in what you do here on a day-to-day basis? Uh, teamwork. Yeah. Teamwork, discipline, uh, doing the right thing, uh, you know, following through with what you need to do on a daily basis to yeah. uh, to do your job. And uh, I got a lot of that from the military experience, a lot of teamwork and a lot of drive. Is it much different in that sense from police services? Uh, I wouldn't be able to know the other services, yeah. but I mean, in terms of our service, yeah, we operate under a military uh, chain of command. So yeah. uh, it, it's very, there are some similarities and yeah. uh, like with any job, you bring to the table your skills, your drive, your enthusiasm. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, I'm just doing my part and I'm, I'm glad to be able to do it here. Good for you. Good for you. All right. So uh, tell us about the scenario with the police impersonator. What happened here? So, uh, well, the, the, the short of it is, is that uh, right now some individual, for whatever reason, uh, decided to... Uh, uh, pull somebody over uh, using a light on their vehicle, uh, dressed possibly of some kind of uh, uniform, and uh, created some some concern in our community. Um, tried to pull a, a lady over uh, in the area of Miles Road and uh, Airport Road on uh, around 2:30 on uh, on Friday afternoon, and uh, she had uh, her instincts uh, kick in and said, you know, something's not right here, and uh, she did the right thing. She uh, obviously notified the police. And uh, we've now prompted an investigation into that incident. And, uh, you know, uh, these things are, are very much a concern to the community. It's a very much, we're a, a part of that community as police officers. And anyone that um, puts that trust that we're working to build every day to keep the community safe at risk, it's, yeah. it, we take it very seriously. And uh, our hope is that uh, someone comes forward and, and, and either one identifies that they were the individual responsible and there's a story behind it. Or um, if somebody's out there doing this, then we 
continue to investigate, working in partnership with the community to find out who it is. Uh, just one incident of this? Uh, right now, I only have the one incident that's been reported. If there yeah. is anybody out there, as we always do, uh, we don't, uh, you know, we always explore the possibility that someone else has, may have been affected by something like this. Right. Uh, please come forward, whether it's in uh, your local area, whether it's in Hamilton, wherever it is. If you have uh, an incident where you don't believe that the individual was a, a true police officer in, in the full sense of the word, then please make that make sure that's reported. Like anything with police services, we cannot respond to something we're not aware of. Mm. So sometimes the smallest things uh, are the biggest things that can help us link things together. Did this lady do anything wrong that warranted being pulled over, or did he just all of a sudden put the light on and from, we go? From what I understand, the uh, individual activated a red light on the vehicle, looked very similar to a police-style uh, vehicle, yeah. uh, and the uh, woman did what any one of us would do. Uh, we, we would pull over and, and, and what happened? What, what, was, what was taking place? So um, obviously uh, when the, uh, the man approached and uh, she would probably do what any one of us would do, even as a police officer, is there, did I do something wrong? What am I being pulled over for? And uh, she recognized that there, there was something off with it. Yeah. And uh, when she said she was going to call the police or, or was begin making the call to the police, the individual left. And uh, that's of great concern. Uh, get any uh, identification as far as name or license number of vehicle or any of that? Uh, I, we have all the information that was put out regards to the suspect. And, yeah. uh, you know, right now we know that it's a... Uh, uh, a vehicle, an older Crown, uh, Ford Crown Victoria that's black or dark blue in color, and it had all black tires and rims. So yeah, it, it looks, looks like a police vehicle. It looks like yeah. one of those, and uh, um, that's all pretty much I have in regards to that at this point, but no license plate information. If anyone sees any vehicles that do match that, obviously we want them to uh, come forward or use Crime Stoppers. He didn't seem to request anything other than her getting out of the car at that point, uh, and then she suspected something wasn't right, and then he pretty much took off, correct? Like he didn't... Yes. Uh, he didn't get any information from her or anything Not like that. Not that I'm aware of, no. Point. No, she did the right thing. Yeah. What, uh, let's go over it. Let's go over the procedure, the protocol. Uh, I'm driving down the link. I'm driving down the highway. All of a sudden, you guys come up behind me. You hit the lights. What should you do? What do you do? Well, we know uh, there are some concerns. Like you can, uh, there, with lighting, um, most of our vehicles, uh, actually almost all of our, our uh, divisional safety officer vehicles, they do have markings and they have blue and red lights. And yeah. most of them are permanent fixtures in the vehicle. Yeah. From what I understand, this one was simply just sitting on, on top of a dashboard and it was right. uh, red in color. So yeah. when you see those lights, you'd, you'd, you'd pull over. Um, usually what happens is an officer would be more uh, prompt to uh, exit their vehicle and yeah. approach the vehicle. We want citizens to stay inside the car. Yeah. Uh, you know, as you know, officers deal with hazards on the road. Uh, we don't want to pull people out of the vehicle, yeah. uh, especially if it's not an emergency. Like if there's an emergency, we'll let you know. But yeah. the key is communication. We're going to communicate the reason for the stop. We're going to identify who we are. And we're, we're typically going to explain the situation right away. What, I, what I've always based my personal policing career on is patience, professionalism, and, and communication. Mm -hmm. And if we can have those three things with an interaction, doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you do, if we can do those three things, then we can, we can, we'll be okay in terms of what the stop is for. It's, um, it, it seems we live in a suspicious society now. Uh, are you worried about copycats or are you worried about when you do legitimately have to pull someone over yep. that they're going to say, well, I was scared. I didn't know it was you, especially if it's at night. Well, like in a situation like that, again, what we would ask you to do is stay in the vehicle, uh, keep your door locked, let the officer approach. Mm -hmm. In Hamilton, our officers are very identifiable. Yeah. I mean, we're all over Twitter. We're all over Facebook. We're on yeah. TV. We're, we're pretty much, you know, our uniforms. It says Hamilton Police. 
police. Yeah. Um, when we're working in a uniform capacity, even with our, uh, we call them our plane door or our, um, so our low profile vehicles, yeah. you're still going to have a uniform police officer exit the car. Right. And you're going to be able to tell what they look like. Yeah. Um, so when she and even an unmarked car, you can look at it once you get up close to it. And correct. Inside it, you can see that it's a police car. Absolutely. And yeah. you know what? If you're at night, if if even if it was or wasn't marked, you're still going to want to have those other identifiers. It's not yeah. one thing is the yeah. answer to everything. Yeah. When you're dealing with police officers, there's a bunch of things, right? The vehicle, the uh, the presence of the officer, the identifiers, the Hamilton police badges, the hats, the pants. Yeah. You know the equipment, yeah. the taser, the yeah. firearm. Like yeah. you you know a police officer when you see one and. Uh, um, if you don't, if you don't, then, you know, there's some options for you. And that's why we release some of those tips as well. And what Give us some of do. those. Well, if you're not sure. If you're not sure, you get pulled over and you're thinking, oh, this guy might be uh, an impersonator. What do you do? Communicate. Ask. Yeah. O- officer, can I just see your badge? Yeah. Yeah. Can I see a, can I see your, uh, your, your identification? Yeah. Could you do, could I, I have no problem cooperating. Could you please have another officer come by here? Yeah. Uh, call the, call the police. 905-546. Uh, 4925, yeah. non-emergency line. Yeah. And if you do believe it's an emergency, we're never going to be offended if you call 911 to say, look, I just yeah. got pulled over. I don't know if it's a police officer. Could you please investigate? And that would be a pretty serious situation, wouldn't it? I would. It, you know what? It's different for everybody. Yeah. You know, I, I'm trying not to blanket the experience no, that the woman too. had. It's all different. Yeah. But at the same time, that's what we're in the business of. We're in the yeah. business of public safety. And if someone has the perception that something's going to jeopardize themselves or they feel it's an emergency situation, then call and explain it, uh, communicate that. This is almost very similar to the fraud calls that people get and impersonating uh, a Canada Revenue Agency, whatever, whatever, and trying, to, and trying to take money away from people. As soon as you start asking certain questions and, and, and take it a couple of steps further, they just unload you. They can't be bothered. And it sounds like that's what happened with here. As soon as this woman suspected something, he took off. Absolutely. And uh, that's why it's of concern, because any one of our officers would have been patient enough to go yeah. through that process. We would explain who we are. We would explain the reason for the stop. And we recognize that some people aren't always happy to see us when they're getting pulled over. That's part of our, well, our responsibility in law enforcement to make sure that the public's safe and, you know, aggressive driving, speeding down the lane at 150, doing a 90. You know, people really shouldn't be surprised that they are being pulled over. But when they do get pulled over, our officers are trained to be professional. They're trained to explain the reason for the stops. And they're going to do everything possible to make sure that the experience is as, as, uh, as good as it can be is done properly. And, you know, it's just like a lot of common sense in scenarios like this. <sighs> You're but asking me that... for the line of common sense, yeah, Scott. I, know, I don't I know, know if I it's know. common. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, what do you think the motive is for this? What do you think? Wh- how do you explain this one? The, these are, uh, Scott, these are what we call mysteries. It's why our detectives are assigned. They're going to they're gonna follow the evidence that they can find in regards to who this is. Uh, perhaps, uh, like, like I said, again, a, an appeal if there's somebody out there that, you know, had some intention of the reason they did what they did. And maybe they're uh, working for a security company. Maybe they're uh, maybe they're just really enthusiastic and thought they were doing the right thing. And, yeah. and unfortunately, that's not their job. You know, we need to leave that to the law enforcement officers, the police officers and, and all that stuff. We don't want people doing that. There's a reason why, you know, blue lights to the front are illegal. Yeah. That's why you'll yeah. get tickets for it. Uh, we know that some people have them in their cars because they have lighting businesses and all uh-huh. those fun things that they do. But yeah. the, the it's it's about being responsible, making good choices. And the, you know, if you see something that uh, some this in, this woman did, it's not, I don't think that's the case. You know, yeah. call the police. Yeah. Let us do our jobs. And yeah. uh, 
what happened here right now is it's the motive is unknown. Uh, but again, I want to praise the uh, the woman that was stopped for doing the right thing. Yeah. Recognizing because she could have just let right. this go. She could have just let this go, and you'd never have found out about it. Exactly, and uh, she did the right thing. And I, I would inc- I would encourage uh, our service would encourage everybody uh, as well in the community. Be alert. Pay attention to what's happening out there. Be our eyes and ears. That's what community policing is all about. And if you're in doubt, give us a call. Uh, you know, we will investigate all these incidents, and we want you to report these things. This is what our profession is uh, is, is built on, and it's working together to make sure that these types of things aren't happening. Uh, has this happened before? Has this happened often? Uh, I've I've been able. I guess to, it does happen. If you uh, you know, I would tell people if you do a quick Google search, you uh, probably you'll find see yeah. see people that have been charged with impersonating police officers across the across the country, across the world. It's uh, it's why it's against the law, and uh, people are they'll face up to five years in jail or uh, or fines for for this type of offense, but. Um, it's not the punishment. I mean, really, it's the fear that they create in the community, too. That's of a great concern. And well, we, and that's the last thing you want is all of a sudden people, you know, um, whether it's using the excuse or even questioning whether the person behind the badge, you know, questioning the authority. I mean, Scott, I, I'll be real with you here today. They do that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they yeah. do that anyway. But yeah. uh. we, we don't want them doing that. We, we, want, we want them to ask questions if they need to ask questions. Our officers will communicate with them. We have, uh, we're training our officers officers to be professional in all situations and respond according to law. And, uh, you know, it's that old saying, I think you get what you give. And if you're respectful, you're polite, you're patient, and uh, we'll, we'll do the exact same thing. I, I think that some of the pictures that are painted today of police officers are often wrong. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the negativity seems to spread a little mo- bit more quickly than the positive stories. Yeah. But I can tell you from working here at the Hamilton Police, there's a bunch of dedicated people up on the front lines to the leadership and uh, behind the scenes in, in all that we do. How, uh, since you brought it up, how concerned are you about the perception of police that is coming from south of the border? Uh, obviously, different scenarios, different countries, different extremes, my goodness. Um, do you see that coming across the border? Do you see public's perception of you changing? Um, I don't. I can't say that it's happening here in Hamilton. We have a great community. It's it's probably one of the uh, the most uh, tight uh, community policing communities that I've uh, worked in in speaking with other officers. Um, our community talks. Our community hosts many events and community events. Like we, I can't go to an, a community event without somebody thanking us for the work that we do. Yeah. Um, you know, these are all the behind-the-scenes things that people need to know about. We get thank yous all the time. We give thank yous all the time. We want to be uh, all-inclusive to everybody. And I think Hamilton's really uh, a great place to be. And, uh, again, patience, uh, respect, uh, communication, and understanding. And yep. if we can do that, you know, in everything that we do, whether it's in policing, uh, you know, whether you're you're working at uh, in any profession, it's just it's the basis of, of a good community is, is is working together, and I think that's really what we see in Hamilton. So, the stuff that's happening and, and some of the incidents uh, down in the states, it's tragic, and uh, you know, like any type of uh, profession, we would hope that there are more people that are doing good mm-hmm. for the right reasons yeah. than there are doing the wrong ones. Constable Steve Welton has been with us, Hamilton Police Service, talking about the incident that happened on Friday uh, with a lady being pulled over by someone impersonating a police officer. Steve, as always, thanks for the uh, thanks for coming in, as always. And Asif Kokar, also media officer. Uh, maybe someday, Steve, you could let him come in and maybe get a word in edgewise here. Yeah, he wants to. I can tell. He's, he's <laughs> leaning in closer to the mic. But uh, oh. <laughs> Hang on one more time. Go on, I just turned it. Is this thing on? Yeah, there, <laughs> there you, you go. go. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks very much, gentlemen, for coming yes. in. Keep up the good work. Absolutely. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.
Global News did a poll recently, and basically the headline says, Liberal support rises, but Ontario believes the province is heading in the wrong direction. And to put it quite simply, they like the Liberals, meaning Ontarians, but they don't necessarily like the leader or the direction that it's going in. How can this be? I have a hard time understanding that we support the Liberals but don't want to re-elect them. To tell us what it all means, Peter Grabb is with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Peter. How are you today? Great, thanks. Uh, why is it that we support the Liberals but don't want to re-elect them? How can we have our cake and eat it, too? Uh, maybe because we want to have our cake and eat it, too. I mean, I, <laughs> is that the answer right there, Peter? Well, I mean, I think it's uh, it's clear that the opposition parties are unpalatable to, uh, to Ontarians at the moment. If... Uh, I mean, I got the sense the last time out, uh, the last election, that people wanted to see a change of government, but they didn't find a party they felt they could support in sufficient numbers to change it. And it seems to me that this is saying the same thing, that they're sick of Kathleen Wynne. They don't really feel the Liberals are doing much, but, uh, you know, at least as bad as they are, uh, it's a known bad, whereas the other ones might be worse. So, in other words, this is less about Wynne and more about there is no choice moving forward. Well, I mean, you'd think, uh, I mean, that's my best uh, explanation of why people would uh, be most prone to support the Liberals, uh, and yet, uh, you know, 40% say they will vote Liberal, while only 25% think the government should be re-elected. I mean, that it just, uh, those numbers don't really make sense, unless ultimately people judge the uh, alternatives to be worse. These sort of, incon- I guess the numbers aren't inconsistent, but certainly, um, 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 are unusual to say the least. Is this the beginning of the end? Is this something that will transpire into greater problems for the Liberals, do you think? Uh, Well, I mean, I think they do have a problem in that uh, Ontarians are tired of them. Uh, They've been there since uh, 2003. Uh, There's a sense in which there's no longer a, a real sharpness to this government. It seems a bit kind of lazy. It tries to solve problems by throwing money at them. Uh, I mean, you have to go back probably till before the 2011 election to find a real strong vision out of this liberal government. I mean, the past five, six years, it's been all about trying to wrestle the deficit down to zero. uh, And there's not been a whole lot else around that that uh, really gives us a sense that they know what they're doing. So, I mean, for those reasons, I think it's a government that's, that's really quite tired and has a hard time finding a way then to reach Ontarians. So we also had the majority of Ontarians in that poll saying they think the province is going in the wrong direction. Um, and again, it's hard to see how they then be 40% in support of, of supporting the existing government. But again, uh, you know, maybe it's because no one has really provided much of a clear direction for Ontario for a long time. You brought up the wrong direction, which I also found uh, interesting, simply because this this party was voted in with a majority, and it's not like any of this is a surprise. We were all well aware of what she was going to do and how they were going to do it, and and even our electricity rate increases have been well documented. So how can we all of a sudden wake up and, I mean, this reminds me of sort of like the, the Brexit vote. We wake up and we all of a sudden realize, no, that's not what we wanted. Yeah, or, you know, you you want something last time out. and uh, But, I mean, even last time out, we'll remember that Tim Hudak, uh, the conservative leader, was way up in the polls in the summer leading into the election. Uh, and then when people kicked his tires, they decided to, to stick with the Liberals. So, you know, again, it may be a case where you're offered choices and you make choices without a whole lot of enthusiasm. And three years later, you're even less enthusiastic. But uh, again, even at that point, you say, well, but it's not like the other things are that good either. 
Uh, I mean, it's me at some fast food restaurants where I don't really want to eat anything, but you have to choose, you know, what's going to be the least fat. <laughs> and, uh, That's a great analogy. It seems like Ontarians are a bit stuck there at the moment because none of the parties oh. are really speaking a language that appeals to them or they're making promises, but we don't really believe they have the chance to realize them. It's like being at a food court and trying to figure out which landfill to consume. Is that what you're telling us? Yeah, more or less. Yeah. <laughs> None of them are going to make you that happy. You know, some are less bad, but it's not like you're going to walk out of there and say, well, that was a great meal. And you'll be hungry again in an hour or so. Uh, surprised that uh, the Liberals are pulling back from the green energy projects. This is the first time they've sort of admitted, or have they admitted, uh, that, that something is terribly wrong. And, and also their reasoning for it, which is, hey, we're full. We got lots of electricity. I mean, you just don't wake up one day and figure that out. I mean, people have been saying this for years. Yeah, I mean, that is a bit surprising. I mean, we do have to remember that in the, you know, about 12, uh, 13 years ago, there's a real fear as we had some of those really hot summer days that uh, we were going to consume more than our capacity to produce. And uh, so I think there was a real push for a number of years of years there to try and find ways to increase uh, production. You know, and that included making the decision to uh, renew the Pickering Power Plant uh, on the one hand and to sign a whole lot of these green energy deals on the other. Uh, the green energy industry obviously was a, a pretty a firm supporter of the Liberal Party. That maybe had uh, one aspect uh, of the explanation for why they've been a bit slow uh, to back off. And I think the reason they're backing off now mostly uh, is that they know they can't afford to have another increase in energy prices before the next election. And so on the one hand, they offer this rebate, but on the other, they say, well, we have to bend the cost curve somehow, and the way we're going to do that is, among other things, by not moving forward in producing more energy uh, at the rather uh, prohibitive rates that they were willing to pay ahead of that. How do they justify their actions prior to yesterday, then? I mean, again, it, it's not as if... Uh, this was a gradual decision. It was all of a sudden they lose a by-election, they give us a rebate on the HST portion of the bill, and now this. I mean, does this? what does this say about their green energy plan? Uh, well, I think it says more about the sort of laziness of a government that's been there for a long time, that they aren't sharp on some of these files. Uh, I mean, because there was a push, I think, early on. They felt that it was better to have more energy, uh, too much energy, than not enough. Mm -hmm. right, that the Conservatives had paid a price after the big brownout in 2003, uh, and you know, although that was really not an Ontario problem, but uh, one imported from elsewhere, but also this real push you know, on certain hot days that people had to reduce energy consumption and uh, a lot of public sector workplaces, even this summer, it gets pretty hot late in the afternoon because they've shut down the air conditioning uh, to try and you know, reduce power. So, I mean, the push was really to find a way to make sure that we didn't have a scarcity uh, you're right that they should have pulled back earlier, but presumably the support of the green energy sector and you know also the kind of political capital it gave them as being forward-looking and dealing in new sources of energy uh, was enough for them uh, to keep going. Whereas I think a government that was a bit less comfortable in power, hadn't been there for quite so long, might have been a bit faster off the mark and saying, wait a second, this is getting really costly and uh, it's probably not in the interest of, uh, of Ontarians to be having uh, such a great excess uh, in electricity production. Uh, still talking about brownouts or coal plants, how long can they keep using this reasoning? I mean, it seems as if they've worked very hard to position themselves as the Green Party, almost 
creating a, a divisiveness through the province in the sense that you're either green or you're not green. And if you don't believe in these plans, you're not green. Whereas I don't think it's that way at all. I think everybody's green now. Um, and and that's just the way it is. Can, can you keep playing that card? Or, or is this people, the public finally realizing that everyone's green, this is wasting money, or this isn't efficient use of funds? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how the Liberals think about their base, but I mean, maybe part of it is that they don't want to mention that the real reason uh, that we have this excess is that we've got a really strong nuclear base load. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it may be harder for their base, which is probably a bit divided between people who are comfortable with that and those who are uncomfortable with it. It may be easier to sell uh, sort of this increase in capacity much more on the green energy side, even if that was probably much less important than the decision to keep uh, producing nuclear uh, in uh, Pickering. Has the green, uh, their green energy plan generated revenue for their party? Uh, yeah, I presume it has. I mean, I haven't gone through the files, but the green energy sector, the people who do all the solar installation and the selling of the panels and so forth, uh, I think realize where their bread was buttered uh, and were willing to, to support that government. Uh, I mean, it's a government that did pay the price uh, less on solar but on wind. And so, I mean, one reason that McGuinty got knocked down to a minority position, uh, you know, about five, six years ago was that he lost a bunch of ridings across southwestern Ontario where uh, wind power became really quite uh, controversial. Uh, and so, again, there, I suspect the wind policy, uh, wind power producers uh, were keen to make sure that the Liberals remembered that they were there for them. Where does this leave the Ontario renewable energy sector? Uh, Well, I mean, we've seen pretty significant development uh, through the feed-in tariff over the past uh, uh, five, six years, eight years even. Uh, I suspect there will be a short-term impact where a lot of planned installations get cancelled, and that's going to have an impact on the installers and probably shake out a lot of the smaller operators in the field. But I think given where prices are going on green, uh, different kinds of green energy installation, uh, that even without the feed-in tariff, there will be people who will be interested in uh, solar and solar storage uh, as those technologies come along. So there may be a kind of a short period of significant shakeout in the industry, but I suspect it would grow again in another uh, five, six years. Uh, so this means a halt on any new sort of uh, wind or solar developments like this. How far does this go? Do we know? I guess we'd have to see. I mean, in many ways, uh, I think, you know, what, what's being put a halt to is people wanting to use this feed-in tariff program uh, to develop, uh, you know, small-scale solar projects or even larger-scale solar projects. So people who have uh, based uh, their ideas on, you know, being part of that uh, are presumably going to pull back. Uh, presumably there's other ways of developing solar and wind power projects, you know, related, for instance, to, you know, specific needs uh, in given industries or areas where, uh, there would still be ways of finding solutions like these that would work. Uh, the savings, I guess it's uh, they, they're canceling just under $4 billion worth of projects. The saving turns out to uh, $2.45, uh, $2.45 a month. Is that too little, too late? Uh, should they go farther? Uh, well, I mean, I think maybe, you know, the bigger issue for voters is, uh, yeah, we're talking about $2.45 a month. Uh, uh, Certainly, there are things that could be done differently uh, uh, in the power sector that might free up another buck twenty-five or you know buck thirty-five, and we could spend a lot of time looking at that. But are there other policies that we could be moving on that would produce much better 
uh, well-being for us. Right? If there's ways we could get to work faster each day, that might be worth more than a uh, buck thirty-five a month. Hmm. Uh, how will environmentalists view this? Uh, I think there'll be a mixed bag. Uh, I mean, I think environmentalists probably uh, would like to see more of a power transition towards renewables, but they also realize that the project of increasing renewables has been really hurt by this perception that it is uh, very costly. Uh, And so in a way to have a pause now and to uh, enable a chance to come back at this uh, issue when the technology has changed in another five or ten years might actually be more beneficial than to have any kind of policy like this be seen as prohibitively expensive by by Ontarians. Are liberals or have the liberals done green energy a disservice by leaving people with a bad taste in their mouth because they've done it so inefficiently? And I mean, even the governor or the uh, auditor general said they... You know, they overspent by $37 billion. And, and again, it, it seems that there's this divisiveness, either you're, you know, a tree hugger or you're not. And, and, and it just seems that, you know, at the end of the day that, that she's tried hard to label people either in or, or on or off the bus when uh, I don't think that's the issue here. I think, again, going back to everyone wants to be green, it's how do we do it the right way? Yeah, and I mean, then the wrong way here may have been to really emphasize uh, doing the production and generation uh, in public in private hands, and then finding what the size of the public subsidy would be necessary to make it happen. Uh, I mean, it may have been that we would have been further ahead having a purely public approach to increasing our use of renewables, uh, and then we wouldn't have had to provide the same scale of subsidy uh, that we do to these small-scale private producers. So. Uh, it may be that part of it's the form of delivery, that if we had had a more publicly planned and delivered uh, system, uh, we wouldn't have had some of the losses uh, that are involved in providing a subsidy big enough to make it you know, reasonable for a private individual to put a few up on their roof or for a farmer to fill a field with the solar panels. What should the Liberals take from this? Has it been a failure? Has it been a success? Uh, and again, I mean, it just seems at this point we're at a crossroads until we figure out exactly what the best way is to proceed forward. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, uh, wind power, I think, has been a difficult thing for the Liberals because it costs some seats. Solar, uh, I mean, in the short term, they're taking a hit for this, but uh, it did enable them on the one hand to make themselves seem modern. It was part of their modern appeal, the sort of modern green Liberal Party that was very successful for them in Toronto. And also, I mean, uh, provided fat paychecks for uh, a bunch of people in rural Ontario who uh, were part of this program. And so it, I think, solidified the Liberals' electoral prospects there, too. So, you know, in the short term, it looks like it's been a real loser for them. But I think in the longer term, it was, you know, part of what enabled them to uh, stay in power so long. How do you think this will change the energy movement moving forward, no matter what political party is in power next? What do you think this means for Ontarians moving forward, just this decision to close this one or to stop at this point? Uh, I mean, I don't think it's going to have a huge impact because, uh, I mean, again, we've set an energy trajectory. We've got uh, a big uh, uh, share, well, not a huge share, but we've got the development of a larger share than we had before of renewables, and we're locked into those contracts. They aren't going anywhere. Uh, we spent a large sum of money uh, renewing Pickering, uh, so that's not going anywhere either. And, I mean, really, I would say the biggest controversial issue is usually probably the nuclear one, whether we remain really reliant on nuclear baseload or not. So, I mean, I think the, the discussion really isn't going to go anywhere much in the next little while. Uh, I mean, it will be interesting to see whether we do do more to cooperate, for instance, with uh, Quebec in terms of sharing production and distribution. 
uh, because there are some synergies that would come up between uh, Quebecers uh, and their use of hydroelectricity and their big demand coming in the winter with electric heating and uh, Ontarians who have a more nuclear and, and distributed base load and where our big demands are really in the summer. Uh, you know, there might be ways of, of pursuing win-win solutions, but we've seen with other provinces who've tried to work together that there's this un, you know, these kind of provincial nationalisms uh, which get in the way of those kinds of agreements. So that might be where the politics goes next. Uh, what will other provinces learn from what Ontario has done? Uh I think they'll probably uh, have questions about using a real private sector, small-scale form of contracting uh, to make things uh, go. I mean, in most provinces, uh, the addition of renewables has departed from the traditional method of making it all public. There's a lot more space for private provision. But in most provinces, they're dealing with much larger private entities and trying to uh, encourage a lot of small-scale stuff through these feed-in subsidies. And, and so I think that kind of approach will be a bit discredited as a result of the Ontario experience. Will this change uh, the public's perception of Green or this party handling it? Uh, I think, you know, it has affected people's view of the party handling it. I don't know if people have quite uh, kind of connected the dots in the sense in, to which there's maybe lack of attention to the public purse. I mean, it hasn't been tied that much even to the cancellation of the gas plants as another example of a kind of high-handedness with the public money. Uh, but I mean, I think it certainly will affect people's attention uh, to that government. In terms of green energy, I think it probably has given it the sense that it might be a bit expensive. Uh, on the other hand, I think people are really concerned about what's happening in terms of climate change and thinking that we need to do energy differently. And so while this may be seen as a failure, I think people are more open to, to saying we may need to make big changes uh, rather than saying that the failure of this is simply a return to the status quo. Uh, exactly. And here's hoping we don't do that. Here's hoping we learn from mistakes and, and, and move forward. Where does this leave cap and trade and this uh, party as they move forward with that? I mean, if people are upset now, what's it going to be like when this uh, takes uh, effect? Uh, well, I mean, it does open uh, a bit of space, particularly for, uh, I think, the Conservatives to say, well, there's, you know, these additional costs that come from trying to put a price onto carbon. Um, but we have a provincial leader who, at least until recently, is still saying that he's in favour of some kind of carbon pricing. So, I mean, uh, I suspect it's not going to be brought that much into politics. Uh, there will be people who are upset with it, but to the extent that the federal government and most of the provinces are trying to find some way to put a price on carbon, uh, I don't know if there will be a lot of space for uh, people uh, being upset uh, with the policy in terms of finding politicians who will take up their cause. Uh, where does this leave Patrick Brown and his ongoing uh, mission, especially when it comes to electricity rates and what has happened with the cancelling of, of these projects? Because this is something that he's been saying for a while. How does he position this? Well, I mean, I think he has to position it as an example uh, now from the past of what the government has done wrong. I mean, a bit like the, the government moving to the subsidy uh, that both other parties on the HST had kind of been proposing. So, I mean, it gives him a bit less leverage on the question uh, than he would have had before, but uh, he's uh, presumably going to think it's going to be fresh enough in people's minds come Election Day, and the fact that this HST rebate is not uh, that large uh, probably will enable him and Andrea Horvath to really use uh, hydro rates as an example of how uh, the government in place hasn't uh, made life more affordable for Ontarians over the last uh, 
uh, the last 13 years it's been in power. So, that I mean, I think it's still a tool for him, but it'll be a bit less powerful than if he could say this is a specific thing I could do, because I don't think he has a lot of other tricks in his bag. So does this, in fact, take the wind out of his sails? I mean, they, uh, the Liberals can always say, well, we listen to you, and here's what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's why we saw the action on it, yeah. uh, and particularly to also make sure that there isn't another increase before the next election, or at least to reduce the opportunity for that to happen take some cost pressures off, and I suspect we'll see a couple more announcements that in various ways try to uh, bend the cost curve down. So yeah, I mean, it does it does have an impact uh, on uh, Patrick Brown and Andrea Horvath's ability to bring this forward, but since our bills are still going to be where they are, people who are upset by that, I think we'll still see it as a mm. clear sense of, of where the government failed. Uh, the problem for Brown and Horvath is I'm not sure what their solutions are going to be that somehow will make hydro suddenly miraculously cheaper. Peter Graff has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, a poll by Ipso Reid and Global, showing that the majority of Ontarians believe the province is heading in the wrong direction, still supporting the Liberal government, uh, just not necessarily what they're doing or if they will elect them again. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The federal government has approved the Pacific Northwest LNG project in British Columbia. Basically, what that includes is a uh, 900K pipeline and an export terminal uh, project. And uh, this is designed to, of course, uh, get uh, this energy off of our shores and onto others. To talk more about all of this, $36 billion project. Ian Lee is with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Hello, Ian. How are you today? I'm doing just fine, Scott. Thanks for the time. As uh, always, we appreciate this. I was watching this announcement uh, last night, and the Environment and Climate uh, Change Minister, uh, Catherine McKenna, didn't look very comfortable at the announcement. Uh, Has this divided Canadians and Liberals alike? I think the divide, in my judgment, and I'm, of course, living here in Ottawa, and by the way, she is my member of Parliament. I live in Ottawa Mm Centre. I live in the boundaries of Ottawa Centre because I live in the urban core, of Ottawa near my university, and it's smack dab within Ottawa Centre, which is, you know, three kilometers from Parliament Hill. Hmm. Um, She's a very decent and honorable person, a well-educated person. I have great respect for her. Now, there's a but coming, obviously, in that. Um, She's what I would call a true believer. And and I don't mean that as a pejorative cheap shot. I mean, she is, she's bought in the full nine yards into the the whole... um, environmental agenda, you know, that we've got to get off fossil fuels and we've got to get them off, get off them as fast as we can, like, like tomorrow almost. And I mean, she hasn't said that, but she's very much in the let's get going and let's do it now and uh, charge ahead, full speed ahead, damn the torpedoes. And um, I don't find that uh, my own experience, and I do read her columns, her, her comments and interviews in the local media, because she does quite a bit in the local media, as well as the national media, I don't see that she's, shall we say, uh, sensitive to the... Um, to what I would call the economic issues, you know, of GDP growth, and we've got to generate more uh, growth in the economy, create more jobs and opportunities. So that was clearly a cabinet decision. And let's be clear, it was a cabinet decision. Mm-hmm. That means a collective decision. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing, I don't know, but I'm guessing she was overruled. Um, and uh, I mean, I've studied government long enough to know that uh, cabinet meetings can be very contentious. Of course, they have to present. That's what cabinet solidarity and, uh, and decision-making is all about. They must present a common front to the outside world. doesn't matter what political party. So this right. has nothing to do with partisanship or anything. 
and it's well known that if you really cannot support the decision, then your only uh, thing you can do is to resign as a minister. And from time to time in governments gone by, that has happened. Uh, conservative and liberal. I think that she uh, was on the losing side. I saw her body language and so forth, and knowing what I know about her and I know what she believes, I don't think she supported that decision. But she's being, you know, a, you know, a loyal cabinet minister, which you have to be. Mm-hmm. If you're going to remain in cabinet, you must support the decision. Um, I think this is, uh, I, as you can guess, I am ecstatic about this decision. Mm-hmm. Um, this is $36 billion, even to uh, people in Ottawa, not sort of a cheap shot at people in Ottawa, but even to people in Ottawa, $36 billion is real money. Mm-hmm. That's going to have an enormous impact on the economy of B.C. and indirectly on the economy of Canada. And this is, let's be very clear, liquefied natural gas. Natural gas is the cleanest of all the fossil fuels. We're not talking about developing coal, which is truly filthy and dirty. Liquefied natural gas and natural gas is the cleanest of all the fossil fuels. And it is the, Bill Gates himself has called it the bridge to the future, meaning to the alternative energy future. So we should be celebrating any project, whether they're pipelines or plants, that are about getting natural gas out to market, whether to a Canadian market or a foreign market, because the natural gas is a substitute for those countries and companies that are using coal, which, as I said yet again, is the filthiest of the dirtiest, while natural gas is the cleanest of the clean of the fossil fuels. So we should be celebrating this. But if you're a true believer, as an environmentalist, you believe that all fossil fuels should be, should be gone. Uh, she was quick to point out that this is all based on 190 conditions that are based yep. in, in, in science, including the first ever max on uh, a cap yep. on greenhouse gas emiss- emissions. What does that mean? Uh, we'll see. <laughs> hmm. um, I, I don't want to um, uh, trivialize or, or poo-poo what they did. I mean, I'm sure that there's some very stringent conditions on the project to ensure um, uh, safeguards so that, you know, um, uh, to ensure against um, uh, pipeline spills and, and, and leaks and that sort of thing. I mean, I have argued, and I don't think this is far-fetched, I mean, we have vastly more demanding uh, uh, standards, uh, rigorous safety standards on pipelines, whether oil or gas, than we do on anything else in this country. And, uh, and there is a bit of a double standard going on. I mean, we don't impose, we don't put those kinds of stringent standards on uh, automobile manufacturing plants. Uh, we just don't. Hmm. Um, and, and there's act, industrial accidents all the time because I've read the reports from Workman's Compensation. There's all kinds of accidents in Ontario on a regular basis, uh, we're, uh, at work, I mean. I'm not talking bicycle accidents. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, but it's because the environment has become so hot potato, so sensitive, that we really have developed a double standard. And so what the Liberal government is doing to justify approving it, and I understand them doing that, they're saying, okay, we're going to put all these uh, checks and balances and, and, and conditions on it to make sure it's absolutely safe. And, uh, okay, if that's what we have to do to bring these resources to market, well, you know, I'm okay with that. I, 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 I have no problem. I mean, I do applaud this government. I was for a while thinking that they weren't going to approve any resource project that involved oil or natural gas. So I really do uh, applaud them that they found their, uh, found their courage uh, to make this uh, decision because it's in the best interest of Canada. Are they doing it any safer than the Conservatives would have? I don't really think so. I mean, I don't... 
for your listeners, I don't have any inside information, but I do know this. I, I, I mean, because I, I live in Ottawa, and I, you know, we live sort of cheek by jowl, so to speak, with people that work in the public service. There are 300,000 people in the federal public service across Canada, and about 200,000 of them are in the city of Ottawa, where I live. So you, you know, I, the sons and daughters in my classes are the sons and daughters of public servants, and my neighbors are public servants. And so over time, you get to know, you know, people in different departments. And the people in the Natural Resources Canada and the, and, and the NEB, they're highly professional public servants. I don't believe that they were proposing far less stringent standards for one cabinet of one political party versus another. They're very professional, the public servants. They would have sent up to the minister, look, regardless whether it was a conservative government minister or a liberal minister, here are the conditions that we believe are prudent and responsible to ensure the safety of this project and, and of course, therefore, the safety of Canadians. And here's what we believe and we recommend to you the minister so i'm sure that those 190 came up from the bureaucracy from them doing their due diligence which is what they're supposed to do uh, in working for the minister and i and i don't think it'll be quote any safer than than under the conservatives and remember the company itself there's this you know scott there's this sort of urban legend emerging that companies are completely irresponsible and they don't care about safety at all and i have this debate all the time especially with professors and and uh, and uh, environmental activists and it's just fatuous nonsense companies and i do know people in companies in oil and gas companies and they are they're terrified of having some kind of a rupture or failure bp oil paid 30 billion dollars in fines yeah. it had a devastating impact on the market value and and of the bp and of course it killed the careers of the uh, senior executives. So this urban legend out there that the oil companies and the gas companies, they couldn't care less if there's a failure and there's a big spill. It's just, it's just, it, this is Trumpy, this is Trump, I call it Trumpism. People <laughs> just making things up without any evidence. Uh, Christy Clark said, the Premier of BC said, this may not happen if prices stay low. What are the chances of it not happening? It, uh, it's funny, I was just reading, or interesting you brought that up, I was just reading the analyses on this, and when they first proposed this five, six years ago, the price of LNG was, was very high in Asia. Since then, you know, prices go up, prices go down of products and commodities, as we know. I mean, our own oil prices are down dramatically. And so uh, the price of liquefied natural gas is very low right now, to the point that it's not economic to do the deal. Having said that, when you make up an investment of this magnitude, and I've actually talked to people in oil companies about mega projects. And they say, when you're making a, an investment decision on a project that's 10 or 15 or $20 billion, you're not making the decision on the 24-hour cycle of oil or gas prices. You are looking over a, literally the life, uh, lifetime, the life cycle of the investment. So if it's a 35-year life cycle, you're trying to guesstimate as best you can where the prices are going to be over that 35-year period to determine if it's going to be profitable over the cycle. In other words, what they're really trying to judge is, are prices going back up? And how soon are they going back up? And how far are they going back up? And for how long? And, and so that you can bet they've got forecasts, futurologists and statisticians and economists there, crunching scenarios upon scenarios upon scenarios. And it really hinges on you know population growth in Asia, where this is going, on the demand for natural gas versus something else. So I think it'll probably go forward because, you know, there is a belief in the International Energy Agency as well as other uh, uh, energy uh, companies that, uh, that prices are going to go back up. This oversupply in the market is going to come to an end around 2019. At least that's what the International Energy Authority is saying in Paris. 
So, you know, three years or two years out, three years out, in the life cycle of an investment like this, it's going to be, I, I'm guessing, 35 to 50-year life cycle, if they're looking at. Three, three years of taking low prices is no big deal mm. when, you, when you're amortizing the cost and the returns over literally a 35, 40, 45-year uh, period of time. So I think it probably will go ahead, although they may roll it out slowly. Is this a good deal for First Nations? Uh, sounds like some are in, some are out. I'm going to be very uh, correct, but very sensitive, but I mean blunt at the same time. I am puzzled by some of the First Nations in their um, objections. I understand that they see that they, they entered, that they believe their land is sacred. I have no problem with that. I understand that. And I believe that they have a very strong association with the land. But, uh, I mean, I think we all do. I mean, I, I'm a homeowner. Okay, it's not the same thing as owning a, a piece of land, but I'm a homeowner, and I don't want to wreck my house. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want my house to be nice, and that's why I invested in it, and I renovated it. And, um, and so my point that I'm getting at is that doesn't prevent me from installing natural gas in my house, which I have. I have a natural gas uh, water tank, heated water tank, and a furnace, and so on and so forth. So my point is that given the, the fact that we all know that our, our Aboriginal peoples, many of them are in, in very you know, dire circumstances, they have very low incomes, I've, I've been mystified by the fact that they don't want to work more proactively with the oil and gas companies to make sure that, of course, they're as safe as safe can be in exchange for equity ownership. This was proposed by the McDonald-Laurie Institute, and they said, look, instead of just getting sort of a buy-off, you know, we just give you a few thousand dollars and it'll go away, well, I don't understand why they don't demand, look, we'll, we'll go along with this project, but we want to be owners. <laughs> we mm. want to have equity in the project. So you issue shares. Yeah. Just like in an, in an IPO in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. the employees are given some shares in the startup, and they can share in the wealth if the company goes public and, begin, and, and becomes successful. Think of Google or Apple. And I'm, I'm surprised that they aren't doing that, that they aren't saying, hey, we want uh, safeguards up the wazoo to make sure, you know, in case against any kind of a pipeline failure or a a project failure, leak. And then secondly, we want equity in the project in perpetuity so that our band is going to be looked after for the future. And uh, I'm just, uh, some of the bands are doing that, by the way, but some others are just, they've aligned with environmental groups and they've become very intransigent and just said, no, 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 absolutely no to everything. And, and I just don't think it's looking after the, the long-term needs of their own people. Let's talk about provincial energy. I can't let you go without asking you your take on Premier Wynne and the energy minister announcing that they were going to start cancelling some green energy uh, projects uh, in order to save just under $4 billion and I guess provide a savings to uh, each homeowner of about two, uh, an average savings of about $2.45 a month. What does this say about their plan um, how do they move forward on this? What are we to What are we to take away from this? Well, first off, let, uh, I will applaud them. I've been a very strong critic for literally three years or more. Is that because you're anti-green, Ian? What is wrong with you? Are you a fossil fuel burning Neanderthal? <laughs> oh no, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. You know, I drive a small fuel efficient car. I put all the latest windows in my house, and I'm telling you, I've, I've got a super efficient house. I've got nothing but LED lights and LED screens and LED TVs. I kid thee not. I've got a hydro bill I know that's less than most people in this province. I pay less than 100 a month. That's how fuel efficient and energy efficient I am. No, uh, but it's a good question. It's because I'm not against us becoming more green. Of course, of course we must become more energy efficient and so forth. It's just that the instruments they chose with the FIT program was one of the worst possible policies and methods to achieve their goal. 
And what it did was it achieved everything. They did it, everything was upside down. That is to say, we ended up producing energy we didn't need at a much higher price than we needed to pay, which we ended up selling at a loss to American states nearby so they could offer rebates to their manufacturers to switch and move from Ontario down to those states. Hmm. I mean, this was truly upside down and backward in every dimension you can think. So I applaud them for canceling these plants. Long overdue. They should have done it before, but better late than never. I, I hope that they go ahead and, and cancel some more. What we ha- I hope that they've learned from this, that the feed-in tariff of paying somebody three or four times or five times or eight times market is not the way to go, and that there are other ways to achieve that. I hope, very quickly, Scott, because this is something I've pushed before talking to you and your, your, your colleague on the, your program, we have had an option staring us in the face for 15 years. Premier Charest at the time, the Premier Quebec, publicly said to then Premier McGuinty, we will sell you, we have plentiful, enormous amounts of electricity coming out of James Bay. We will sell you on very long-term contracts, way below anything you're paying in Ontario. The rumor was he was offering it to Ontario for five cents a kilowatt hour. Hmm. And McGuinty said, no, we want a made-in-Ontario electricity energy policy. And so we all got whacked by the feed-in tariff program, which is driving our electricity through the roof. I hope, I urge the Ontario government to reopen negotiations with the province of Quebec that has enormous quantities of clean electricity coming out of James Bay. They can sell it to us cheaper than you can imagine, and that should be part of our commitment to shift to a greener world, and that energy is green coming out of James Bay. It's hydroelectricity, and we could probably get it for 5 or 6 or $0.07 cents a kilowatt hour instead of these absurd bills that we are now paying in Ontario. Where does this leave Ontario's energy sector? Uh, are we at a crossroads now? I think we are. Well, what we've got is this really bizarre um, mishmash of sort of state central planning that we used to see under the Soviet Union, side by side with, you know, uh, decentralized market economy, you know, pro- private for profit firms, and and so there's been such a mishmash that uh, the next government and the next election, whomever it is, whether it's the Liberal government with a new leader or uh, uh, the Conservatives, are going to have to, I think, revisit root. I mean, from the very get-go, look at everything that they're doing because there's been so many mistakes made, I mean, by government intervention in this area, that we've really created a very inefficient electricity sector. And some could say, well, so what? Who cares? Don't get your knickers and then on. But it's having an impact on the growth of Ontario for everyone because people, I want to remind everybody, and this is StatsCan data, electricity is one of the three most important costs of the average business in Ontario. Wages and electricity and cost of goods sold if you're a manufacturer, the raw materials, in other words. So what we're doing through this deeply misguided policy of of, uh, Kathleen Wynne is they've harmed our other businesses across the province and every other industry and put them at a competitive disadvantage vis-a-vis other states and other provinces that face much lower electricity costs. If electricity was a trivial part of your business cost, who cares? But it's not. It's one of the three most important costs that the average business must pay. So what we're doing is we're jacking up their electricity price at the same time that we're jacking up the minimum wage on these businesses, at the same time we're jacking up the CPP premiums, which we're forcing them to pay, at the same time we're about to announce a carbon tax. And then they sit there, you know, like the deer in the headlights, 
you know, scratching their head saying, gee, was how come Ontario's growth rate is lagging? Hmm. Well, it's a, it's a policy-induced recession through bad government policies that's causing this problem, and they can be undone or redone or revised to try to reduce the, the, the cost and the burden on business, which is who hires most of the people. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about all things energy-related. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.